Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Welcome to part two of our ongoing Calvinism versus Arminianism debate between Blake Courtright and Jacob Rohr. In this episode, we talk about the question, just how fallen are we? What does it mean to be dead in trespasses and sins? Are we so depraved and mired in sin that we cannot even have faith in God? Blake Courtright answers, yes. Unless God quickens us through his spirit, we are innately unable and unwilling to reach up to him in faith. Jacob Rohr says no. He believes that though we are fallen, we are still capable of responding to God's call. Here now is episode 138, Calvinism versus Arminianism, part two, Total Depravity. To start things out, we have Blake Courtright here, and he is going to explain the view as he understands it, and then Jacob is going to respond and understand the view that he has from Scripture. So, Blake, let's get started. What's your take on total depravity? As we come to this doctrinal schema, the starting place is what is the state of man before God? Because that sets the groundwork for the rest of the discussion. (laughs) And it's also the one that we ourselves can understand the most easily of of all the, the points, I think, because it's something that we experience and we can see in ourselves. So there's a bit of a, again, this is where acrostics become a little difficult because total depravity people hear that and they think, well, nobody is as bad as they can be, you know, totally depraved. But that's not what the actual point of doctrine is. The idea is more of a root of depravity, that sin has affected every faculty of our being, our mind, our will, our uh, physical body, our soul, our heart, our emotions, that every aspect has been tainted by sin and is affected by sin, and that that has affected certain aspects of our abilities However, uh, that's not to say that people are as evil as they can possibly be, because as we look in the world around us, we see uh, really horrible tragedies take place. We see human evil reaching new heights uh, every day. So to say that men are as evil as they can possibly be is not what total depravity is stating. All it's stating simply is there's a root corruption, uh, or as R.C. Sproul would call it, radical corruption, which totally destroys the acrostic and makes it rulip. But um, I, I, think that's a, I think that's a better term because the word radical is obviously related to root. Uh, so that it's this idea of root corruption, which is more in line with what the view is actually articulating. So when we come to that topic, I think it's important to see what is man's state before God. So here's a quick doctrinal summary I found on the Gospel Coalition that I thought was a, a good way to explain it. It says the doctrine of total depravity or total inability says that all men, as a consequence of the fall— are born morally corrupt, enslaved to sin, at enmity with God, and unable to please him, or even of themselves turn to Christ for salvation. And then this then necessitates an unconditional election. Uh, And there's scriptures from Ephesians 2, uh, Colossians 2, and I have actually a a long list of scriptures that I might pinpoint in a second here. But I do want to also preface that we're not talking about like if there's a car accident, was God directly involved in the, the outcome of something like that? That falls under the label of providence. We're specifically concerned with predestination, that is God's involvement or lack thereof in salvation. So those discussions are very important, but that's a whole different topic that maybe we can do on another day if this goes well. But I think when we come to this total depravity, so the idea is men are fallen, which I think is a Christian doctrine, even if we disagree on what that means. I think all Christians would affirm that mankind has fallen. And the other affirmation is that God is sovereign. Again, how we understand that may vary, and you guys can correct me, but I think all Christians would agree that God is sovereign in some sense of the word. Well, maybe you could define what the word sovereign means, Mm -hmm. because it is such an important (laughs) word in this discussion. Absolutely. So I'm going to be drawing, again, this is, now I'm not going off of scripture. I'm not putting this at the authority of scripture. This is simply something that a body of Christian believers put together uh, in a document, a confession of faith, an understanding of faith, of how they understood this to mean, which I tend to agree with. They have scriptural reasons for this, and you guys can definitely disagree with this if you want, because we're not 
under any bound to this confession. The scriptures are binding authority. So this is from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, section 1. God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. So that's the, and then there's a semicolon, and I'll kind of take a breather there. So that notion is that the sovereignty of God is expressed in that he freely, by his own will, and unchangeably decreed or ordained whatsoever happens. And that statement isn't a Calvinistic statement. It's not even a Christian statement. That's just a statement of theism versus atheism, of is God sovereign in the sense of does God have the authority and power to prevent things from happening? And I would say he does have the authority or power to prevent things. As we see in Scripture, uh, he prevented was it with Abraham and Sarah? He prevented the one guy from his seat. He's like, you were going to, but I prevented this. Um, and we see other instances of God preventing catastrophe. So God has the authority and power to prevent things. So by nature then, if something is happening in the world, it is either decreed of God, like the, the coming of Christ was something that was proclaimed, or it's allowed of God, which still falls under the idea of ordination. That is that he could prevent it. And because it happens, he's made a choice not to. I don't know why. I can't comment on that. That's not what we're here to deal with. But that idea of God has the power and authority to prevent something. So therefore, if he doesn't, he's making a choice about it in allowing it to happen. But that, that's simply in the sense of permission, not in the sense of approval. And I think that's an important distinction there. So, that, so that's what Calvinists are talking about when we come to this idea of God's sovereignty, is that he has this authority and power because he's God. But then Westminster quickly adds... Uh, after the semicolon, yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. And that's very elaborate theological language, but the gist of it is we're still unfolding things, but by nature, if God's sovereign, he has the ability to prevent it, he doesn't, he's made a choice about it, therefore he's still sovereign over that, even though he has no active part in the choice. So I'm not saying that God's jumping down into history, causing things to happen in that sense, to be sovereign. That's not the kind of sovereignty or, or rigid determinism we're talking about, but merely that because he's the king of the universe, the ruler overall, if something transpires within that universe of his, it's under his sovereignty in that sense. Does that make sense? We could disagree well, with that, but that's uh, it. Honestly, it's, it's a bit difficult to get a handle on mm-hmm. for me because I'll tell you what's easy for me to understand. Mm-hmm. God determines everything or God allows everything to just happen. <sighs> those either of those perspectives are very easy for me to understand. What you're saying, I'm not I'm not exactly sure. Mm-hmm. You it seems like you're taking more of a middle position where he he determines certain things to happen and then he permits other things to happen and you're calling that sovereignty. That would be right. In other words that he has the authority and the power to exercise over those things. So by nature if he is permitting it to occur, he's still sovereign over it. Right, but Does when he permits it, he's not approving it. Correct. Okay. It's simply that he is—he's, you know, he's not—he's not saying that it's a great thing, but he's permitting it to happen, as it says, like he's—he's he's, uh, in Romans, like he's enduring these vessels of wrath unto that time. So, uh, and God is patient and loving, kind and gracious, and and abound and slow to anger, uh, as we see in Exodus. So I think we're not talking about a cosmic chess player with both sides of the board running, but rather a God who has the ability to intervene at every point in history, but he doesn't because he's not a cosmic chess player. Um, but it's also not like, uh, Sproul talks about the idea of a maverick molecule, which I, I like that phrase, that idea of if there's, which not everyone's going to agree with this. This is just something that I, I think is an interesting phrase. As he says, it's if an impressive statement. It is, it's a good term. He says, if there's one, I, I, I'm not even going to try to uh, impersonate his, his vigor when he says it, but he says if there's one uh, maverick molecule running loose in the universe, there's one thing that's outside of the sovereignty of God, how do we know that that's not the one thing that'll, was it the, the shoe was lost, the rider was lost, the rider was lost, the hor- horse was lost? Like the butterfly effect. Right, so it, it's like that one thing may be the causation that prevents or blocks God's sovereign plan of Christ coming back and, and establishing dominion because it could, it could have that huge effect. So he says there's no maverick molecules in the universe where God is sovereign. But again, that doesn't mean that God is at every moment directing every single molecule in the universe as he wants. 
All right, well, let's get back into total depravity yep. because you have to finish what you were saying there. So um, far, so far, summarize where we're at. You reject the idea that people are incapable of doing anything good. Correct. And at the same time, you're affirming that sin it so infects us mm-hmm. that there's no area of our mind or our emotions or whatever that's not some in some way tainted. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair? summary or that's correct okay. and here's just a quick little uh, verse list i i got this again off of gospel coalition from uh, travis Carden, so i'm in, indebted to that for this list of verses but it says is man basically good or evil and he quotes ecclesiastes see this alone i found that god made man upright but they have sought out many schemes ecclesiastes 729 and then all men are there any exceptions to this and Romans eleven thirty two for God has consigned all the disobedience that He may have mercy on all. Uh, Romans three twenty three all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah fifty three six all we like sheep have gone astray; we have turned every one to his own way. And then he talks about this: our men totally depraved. He quotes Jeremiah uh, talking about the heart. Jeremiah seventeen nine the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Titus one fifteen through sixteen to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. He talks about the will. Jesus in John 8, 34 says, Truly I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. And then Titus 3, 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Galatians 4, 8, 9, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that were by nature not God's, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to once more, to be once more? He talks about the affections. He quotes Romans, Ephesians, Proverbs. There's a whole slew here. And then at all, Romans 7:18. for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Isaiah 1, 5 through 6, the whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. And then it says, are people born good? Uh, and there's a whole slew on that. John 3, 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh. Psalm 58, 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. So there's a whole slew of these things that I could keep going on. And I can come back to those as we have specific uh, contentions. But the, the idea is that Scripture paints a picture of man's fallenness, where we are evil before God, even though we're capable of doing ethically good things, you know, good ones. We see atheists doing good things, doing humanitarian things. But before God, as Paul says, like, all my righteousness is dirty rags. And then there's a whole, this idea from scripture of, of man's moral inability, or Jonathan Edwards, the distinction of natural ability, our faculty of choice, which is not impeded, or moral ability, which is the desire to choose God. And Augustine said the same thing in his terms of free will, like we have, we're free to make our choices, and liberty, which is the freedom to choose God. What they would say is that in the fall, man didn't lose his faculty of choice, his ability to, to make decisions. Uh, we still act and decide what we want to decide. But what we lost was the liberty or the moral ability to choose God and to long after God. So they're saying we see men incapable of themselves, uh, of of choosing God because we don't want God. We, we choose what we want and we want to sin. So that's the short <laughs> All right. line there. Excellent. Thank you for going through that. Essentially, the question before us today is how far have we fallen? Mm-hmm. And what you're saying is we've fallen to such a degree, if I understand you correctly, that we are not able to choose God. That's the, when, to quote Ephesians 2, he says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the prince, the power of the air, according to the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And he doesn't say, but then you were awakened and you reached out and God showed favor to you, but he says, but God who's rich in mercy. So that's that, uh, that, that hinging point. I know Ephesians 2 is kind of the classic Calvinist text on this, which is why I saved it for last. So, that, so that's what we're talking about, is that people have bios, physical life, uh-huh. but they are spiritually dead. Uh, so they have no zoe. Um, and Jesus says, like, I, I come that you may have life and life abundantly. But he's not in a graveyard talking to dead bones. He's talking to living people who have their bios, their, their, their living physical being, 
but they don't have the spiritual life, the Zoe life, which is what he's talking about there. Jacob, what do you think? Let me let me preface with this. I don't want us to throw out so many verses that we don't actually sit down and look at certain important ones because there are some passages that I'd look I'd like to look at more intently, and uh, I don't want us to talk past each other or anything. So I would agree with Blake that sin has affected every facet of man, and that it has tainted him and corrupted him. And the question is not whether we're uh, marred by sin or not. The question is, what does that mean? Where does that leave man? Does it leave man in a place where we are totally enabled to make a choice for him, as Blake and his theological system says? I would argue not. I would say that even in our marred state of sin, our fallen state, uh, that the scriptures still testify that we are uh, able to choose God when he invites us through his son Jesus into his kingdom, we can respond. So here are uh, three reasons why I can't, at this point right now, take take total depravity at its face value. So number one, faith precedes regeneration. I'll go back and explain these all too. There are biblical examples of people using their free will to choose God and respond to his invitation. And three, there are scriptural weaknesses to total depravity as a whole. And this, uh, a fourth one, which I won't get to in this one, but some of the traditional texts that Calvinists use to show that man is totally depraved, aka totally, they cannot choose God themselves, I think, I think are a little misunderstood. Now, the first one, faith precedes regeneration. Usually, if you look up online or read books from a Calvinistic perspective, you'll see this phrase, regeneration precedes faith. And this comes from, uh, at least that I'm aware of, John 3, where Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. And Jesus says, unless one is born from above or born again, uh, the word there is onothen, then they cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. And so, correct me if I'm wrong, Blake, but from a Calvinist perspective, because man is cannot choose God himself, God has to choose man and then once he is regenerated, then God gives him the, the gift of faith that he needs. However, I would say that the scriptures testify that faith comes before that being born again, that being born from above. In Luke eight twelve, 12, uh, Jesus says, Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. And so we have salvation here, and we have the idea of believing, and believing precedes salvation. Uh, in Acts 16.31, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. Uh, again, believing comes before uh, salvation. It doesn't say anything about being born again, and then you're saved, uh, and then you're given faith, and then you're saved. Same thing in Romans 10, uh, 9-10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And then in 1 Corinthians one twenty one, Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So I would say, I mean, these are just a small portion of scriptures, but it, it seems as though the Bible indicates that when we believe in the Lord Jesus, when we uh, believe in what God has invited us to, then through that, we put ourselves in a position where we are allowed to God to work on us, to change us, for us to be born again, and then uh, have entrance into the kingdom. Number two, uh, it seems as though there are biblical examples of people exercising free will to choose God when he invites. Uh, in Exodus 19, 3 through 8, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. So Mo- Moses came and called the elders of the people and said before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. In Deuteronomy 30, uh, this is towards the end of the second giving of the law, and Moses is speaking on behalf of God. He's speaking to the Israelites, and he says, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today uh, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and the curse. So choose life, choose life in order that you may live. 
you and your descendants. And so God uh, is laying out uh, blessings and cursings. If you obey me, this is what is going to happen. If you disobey me, this is what's going to happen. So I want you to choose life. In Joshua 24, 15, and 19 through 22, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but uh, Joshua is speaking to the people, and he says, look, do you want to serve uh, the God of your fathers, which was across uh, the river Euphrates? Do you want to serve those pagan gods, or do you want to choose Yahweh? And Joshua says, well, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then Joshua says to the people, you're not going to be able to serve God because he's holy, he's jealous, and so on. And the people turn to Joshua and they say, no, but we will serve Yahweh. Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. And lastly, in Luke 7, we have this story where Jesus goes into uh, the house of a Pharisee. He eats and there's this woman. It says that she is a immoral woman. She's most likely a prostitute or some sort of lifestyle that is not pleasing to God. Jesus is in this house and the woman comes to him and she wets his feet with her tears and she basically humbles herself in the best way possible. And Jesus says that her sins are forgiven. Now in the story, uh, Jesus draws parallels between how the Pharisee treated him and how this woman treats him. And the Pharisee says, well, how can you forgive her? And Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. If we are regenerated before we believe that the burden of proof would be on Blake to see where that is in the text in Luke 7 because it doesn't say anything about that. It just says that she humbles herself. Jesus says, I forgive your sins because your faith has made you well. Now, a third point is that just overall, when we look at the totality of scripture, there are weaknesses with the total depravity position. And there are four points I want to make. One, Calvinism teaches, or at least like this aspect, a total depravity teaches that humans have lost the ability to receive any spiritual truth before conversion. However, in Genesis 3, the tenets of radical depravity are missing from the curses of God. Why do we have the problems that we have in this life? It's because we rebelled and God laid out uh, curses. Specifically, he laid out a curse against uh, the serpent. He cursed the woman, specifically that the pain in her child wearing would increase uh, in childbirth. Uh, and that the husband would rule over her. And to the man, he said, he's going to have to toil the land because it's going to be filled with thistles and thorns, and he's going to have to manually work the land, and that ultimately he will die a physical death. From dust you are taken to dust, you shall return. There's nothing in the curses that indicate that man is unable to choose God. Uh, I would agree, yes, there is a separation there, but what degree is that separation? Is it so much so that uh, man can't choose God? If it is, it seems like that would have been a little more obvious in, in, in Genesis 3. The second point is that the tenets of total depravity are missing from the two primary texts in Paul that talk about the consequences of being an Adam. So there are two main texts uh, in Paul's letters where Paul talks about what does it mean to be in Adam? If you're in Adam, this is, uh, this is what happens. And the two texts are Romans 5, 12 through 21, and 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. And I'm not going to read those, but basically what he says is that the consequence of being an Adam is death, not a spiritual inability to ever respond to him. So, I mean, we'll get to this later when we look at Ephesians. There is spiritual death, but what does spiritual death mean? For Blake in his position, he would say that that would mean a inability to choose God. I would say that that would mean uh, a separation, a distancing from God. And so when we look at the two passages in Paul that talk about the consequences of being an Adam— uh, it seems as though a spiritual inability to ever communicate with God or choose him or respond to him uh, is missing. Three, it seems as though general revelation disproves the notion that unregenerate man cannot seek or understand God. In systematic theology, there, there are two types of revelation, special revelation and general revelation. Special revelation is what Israel had with God in the Old Testament. God had chosen Israel as his people. He had given uh, them his law, his oracles, and whatnot, and all the other nations were excluded. Likewise, after the time of Jesus and in the modern church today, we have uh, the Bible, we have Jesus as our revelation of God. And so that's special revelation. General revelation is this idea that God has instilled in all humans, regardless of whether they've heard the gospel, regardless of if they know the true God or not, he has instilled in them an understanding of who God is. 
In Romans, this is spoken about briefly in Romans 2, 14 and 15. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, in their conscience, bearing witness, and their thoughts alternatively accusing or else defending them. And so it seems as though by virtue of God instilling uh, a sense in us of who he is, of having a moral right and wrong, that we are not totally cut off from God and we are not totally alienated from him in the sense that we can't respond to him or anything. All right, so... <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry. There's just one more point. Oh, <laughs> Okay, sorry, sorry. Just one more, and then this will be my last one. Romans 1, 18 through 32 is Paul's indictment of humanity uh, before God. In this section, Paul talks about humanity, and he describes them as ungodly. He describes them as unrighteous. He says that they have become fools. They serve the creature rather than the creator, which could be talking about several things. Adam uh, sinning in the beginning or uh, one of the darkest moments in Israel's history where they made the golden calf and worshipped it instead of worshipping the true God who had just delivered them. Paul says all these things about humans, and then he gives a list uh, in verse 29, 30, and 31, all of the uh, behaviors and characteristics that are associated with man and his sin. And yet, Paul can still say this about him. He says that that which is known about God is evident within them because God has made it evident to them in verse 19. He says that they have an understanding through what has been made there without excuse. In verse 21, they knew God. And in verse 32, they know the ordinances of God. So this seems to be the strongest case that even in man's state of sin, he knows who God is. He knows the ordinances of God. Now, whether he chooses to abide in them or not is another question. But to say that he is totally cut off, totally unable to see God or what God wants seems to be lacking. So, Okay, thank you so much. Yeah. Let's clarify mm-hmm. just so that it's razor sharp yep. what, where we're at with this. Mm. So, Blake, in one sentence, what is it you're trying to say about depravity? So as a result of the fall, we still have our physical life, uh, but we are spiritually dead to the things of God until he regenerates us or brings us to life. And then we're able to believe because now we're alive to the things of God. Or to use the Jonathan Edwards distinction, we have the natural faculty of choice, the natural ability but we lack the moral ability to choose God because our inclinations are towards sin because of the fall. Okay, and what was your point? That total depravity does not equal total inability. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Blake, come back on that a little bit, yep. and let's have some discussion. Yeah. So the first thing I wanted to say was you talked about the reform maxim of regeneration precedes faith from John 3. And you cited some really, really awesome sections of people believing and and you see the salvation effects of it. But you did confuse the terms a little bit, and I wanted to clarify that. And I don't think that's your fault. I think there's a miscommunication about that. So I still absolutely believe, Romans, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, and that, indeed, calling on the name of Jesus, that uh, as John 3.16, that's the prerequisite uh, on our part in terms of our— so you were saying belief precedes salvation in terms of an ultimate sense, and I absolutely agree with that. But again, I come to John 3 for a moment, and I do also want to point out something about the Luke 7 record. And in that moment, I picture especially Jesus in the personification of the Word of God there. I don't think he's going to go and give the woman a theological discourse. Um, I think what he's saying to her is a true statement. Your faith has saved you because faith is a prerequisite for salvation. He's not commenting on regeneration because that's irrelevant to the discussion at hand. Would be my contention because that's not he's not making a theological assertion there he's simply giving her what she needs and encouraging her um, where John 3 Nicodemus who's a teacher of the law comes to Jesus and poses him theological questions and so there Jesus is actually addressing a specific theological issue where in Luke I think Jesus is just being very tender and comforting and encouraging and telling her a truth that because you have believed you're saved and that is a truth that echoes from Genesis to Revelation. So you were saying belief precedes salvation, but I still hold that regeneration precedes faith um, because in John 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says to him uh, in verse 1, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. And Jesus says <laughs> to that response, Jesus says to him, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
And then Nicodemus says, well, you know, how are you born when you're old? And he, he almost gets a little crass with him here. He's like, what, are you going to enter back into your mother's womb again? Uh, and Jesus says, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. And he talks about this in a theological term. So, and elsewhere we see in scripture that says that the flesh profits nothing. So in this sense, taking, again, kind of a systematic approach, looking through all of scripture as you're doing as well, and I want to commend that. Um, as we're looking at, at all of scripture, we see here in John, Jesus making this statement, which I think says that, that you have to be born again in order to see the kingdom. Because on the Arminian side, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you have people who are unregenerate, who have not been born again, seeing the king of the kingdom and the riches of the kingdom and choosing that before they've been born again. Am I understanding that correctly or am I misrep- I don't want to misrepresent him. Yeah, God makes the invitation to man, whatever that looks like personally. I mean, I only know of one experience of that, mm-hmm. me. God invites them and then the person either accepts or mm-hmm. rejects. So that's like the idea of uh, prevenient grace, like God's grace is available to it's like an invitation it's an open invitation an equal opportunity uh redemption (laughs) so it's out there and then we can either respond to that or not so would you say that born again in this context how would you address that though so well born again yeah yeah well i would i would absolutely agree with you that we cannot see or enter the kingdom of god unless we are born from above we both agree on that. The question is, where does faith come into this? Mm-hmm. Does it come before or does it come after? And in this immediate context, mm-hmm. Jesus, he's not talking about faith. He's just talking about two things. He's talking about being born from above and then the kingdom. Faith is not something that he's discussing in this immediate passage. Now, a little later on in the conversation, he talks about it. Mm-hmm. But according to the words of Jesus right here, you can't see, you can't enter the kingdom unless you're born from above. I would, I would agree with that. Let me, let me pause it right there because Blake had made an earlier point on the priority of John 3 over Luke, was yeah, Luke yeah. 7? Yeah, yeah, Luke 7, yeah. I wanna, uh, do you accept his point? Well, okay. I thought it was an interesting point. Yes, I'm not expecting this full theological discourse from Jesus to the woman. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was my mistake for not clarifying that. Of course, that would be ridiculous. But I'm saying in the context of Luke, and if being born again, being born from above happens before that, mm-hmm. nothing in the story says that that happened to the woman. Now, I'm not saying Jesus had to explain it to the woman. I'm saying in the context of the story in Luke, there is no evidence of that happening, mm-hmm. to which I would say that the burden of proof is on you to show that. Now, in John 3, I would, my point is that in this immediate discussion with uh, Nicodemus, Jesus is talking about two things. He's talking about, quote-unquote, regeneration. It doesn't say that, but it's talking about being born again or being born from above, and it's talking about the kingdom. The faith aspect is not there. We both agree that we have to be uh, regenerated to see and enter the kingdom. But the question is, where does faith fit into that? Does it go faith, regeneration, kingdom, or does it go regeneration, faith, kingdom? Mm-hmm. I would go with the former, that faith precedes that. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's move to Ephesians 2. Would that okay. be all right? I did actually have one other thing in John. All right, but, well, uh, bring it up now. Yep. Go ahead. So to that point, though, later in the passage comes the famous John 3.16, yes. which does come after the regeneration yes. passage, because he, he leads in with, you must be born again, this and that. Uh, and then he talks about this, for God loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So I think in the course of his discourse, he brings up faith after he talks about the new birth. But that's neither here nor there. And John, I wanted to draw your attention to chapter 6, uh, verse 65. And he said to them, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father or unless it is given him by the Father, uh, other translations read. So in this we have an absolute negative. It's It's universal negative. No one can, which we talk about can and may, may being permission, may I go do this. Can is about ability. You know, the teacher would say, I know you can do that, but you also may. So we're dealing with no one has the ability to come to me, which is the, the statement, the object of that, unless, and unless indicates not only an exception, meaning that so, that, so there's this universal negative, no one can come to me unless, and then unless introduces a necessary condition that has to follow from that. So there's this universal negative, no one can come to me, unless what it is given him by the Father. That's a little bit vague, but then we go to John 6, because he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, 
and I will raise him up on the last day. So now the, the necessary condition indicated in John 6.44 for someone to come to Jesus, which we would say is a necessary condition for salvation is yeah. to come to Jesus. Yeah. But no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I think that there's a few different texts on that verse, but I would like to draw your attention. That same verb appears in James 2.6. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it real quickly here. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Now, one of those words uh, is the same word used in John here for draw. And it is the word in James that is translated drag. And if we go also over into Acts 16, 19, we'll see the same verb applied there as well. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. I know that translation is not arbitrary. There's a reason, uh, you know, verbs aren't uh, just translated arbitrarily. And I don't think that, you know, these biblical translators are so irresponsible as to utterly misrepresent uh, the term. And there are other instances in in Greek where that word is used to, to describe draw, like drawing water from a well. But in Kittle's theological dictionary, who's not a Calvinist, I might add, he defines it as to compel by irresistible force. <laughs> so um, if we apply the draw languages in the, the, the Arminian prevenient grace, the wooing, people say, well, no one can come to him unless the father woos him. Well, if we apply that to James, is the rich that woo you into court or uh, the book of Acts, and they wooed them, here, here, here. I think that that's a little that's a little bit difficult. So the force of the verb is to compel. Uh, and if we're going to go with drawing water, how does one draw water from a well but to stand at the top of the well? Because the King James does translate James as draw, mm-hmm. but it's in that forceful sense of the verb of how do you get water from a well but that you compel water to go against gravity, against its natural force, and come out so you can use it? Or do you stand at the top of the well and say, here, water, 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 come on, and you give an invitation for the water to come up to the well? Right. So Well, that's, that's enough to <laughs> respond to. Jacob, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, quickly to John 6, 65, mm-hmm. I agree with you that no one, I mean, Jesus says, for this reason, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted. Well, I guess in different versions, I would say different things. It depends on how you want to translate this, but it has been granted him from the father. Mm-hmm. And I agree with that. My, my natural inclination is not going to want to choose Jesus, but if God so calls me to, if he so invites me, then absolutely I, I would want to get on board with that if I want to. Now, going back to John six forty four, I would mm-hmm. I would argue let's let's look at the context of whole because you're right. Mm-hmm. The verb there in, in verse forty four is elko, and it's this like forceful seizure, dragging, compelling. Mm-hmm. John six thirty six, ah. Jesus says, uh, "But I said to you, speaking to his op- opponents, that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe." And then in verse forty four, he says, "No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me uh, draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day." In verse forty five, it is written. In the prophets, that they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. In other words, uh, the opponents of Jesus were not were not believing in him because they were not hearing or learning from the Father. If you look back in chapter five, there's a whole there, there's there's four witnesses that Jesus lays out that testify to him: the witness of John the Baptist, the witness of the works that he is doing, the witness of the Father sending him, and the witness of the scriptures that testify to him. And yet the opponents uh, of Jesus, they don't, they don't see this, they don't hear it. And so that is why they are not believing. Now, but there are other people in John who do see this, who recognize it, who do believe it, and who do come to Jesus. Well, I wanted to add a, uh, a point on the, the language. Mm-hmm. So this word elko does indeed mean to draw or, or drag. The uh, LSJ, little Scott and Jones, gives uh, that as a, a definition to draw or suck up <laughs> um, it means it can also be translated to uh, draw in air as in to breathe mm-hmm. but there is also another definition here to draw mm-hmm. to oneself to attract mm-hmm. and it says of the magnet um, and so that would be a resistible force uh, whereas if you are using it in reference to the uh, the well mm-hmm. and uh, drawing up the water from a well that would be pretty irresistible. Uh, so I, I think the word does have some flexibility in it because take, for example, the ESV. 
This translation is a Calvinist translation. <laughs> I think people pretty much know that. And, I mean, if they could, they would say, no one, this is John six forty four. Yeah. no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me compels him. Right. Or drags him mm-hmm. or something like that. I think they, this particular translation would say that if it could say that. So there is something going on here with this word in the context that the translators felt was sufficiently ambiguous where they didn't want to go with the stronger rendering. Uh, So I'm nervous to make a case based on that one word. However, there's no question that this word can mean what you said. Absolutely, yeah. There's no question about that. And and, and it's your right to bring that out. The question is, is that what it means here or not? Yeah. yeah. Um, also, I just want to, we've talked about this before, but analogies, if you take them so far, they fall apart and they, mm-hmm. they, they lose their meaning. But uh, you use the image of drawing water from a well. Well, you take a bucket, you uh, put it down in the well, you get up water. You get up most of the water, but you don't get all the water. Some of the water splashes out. Mm-hmm. And so if water is humanity, God is the one who is drawing. Uh, he doesn't draw all of them because some people don't. Unfortunately, some people resist. I think that might be a case of taking the anthropomorphized yeah. analogy a little too yeah. far. But yeah. uh, I do submit that there are those who are not saved, though, in the, gen- in the general scheme of humanity. Like, I don't think any of us are universalists that would say no. that uh, God absolutely secures the salvation of everybody. Nope. I also don't think any of us would go so far as to say that God doesn't save or even make opportunity to save anybody. I wouldn't say that. Although, uh, to God's sovereignty, and I didn't get into that, I'll talk about it more in a later session, but of God's justice— I think he's absolutely just if he punishes all of humanity. Uh, he's under no obligation to show mercy because, by definition, mercy is not owed. So, in that sense, God could execute judgment on all of humanity and uh, still be perfectly just in doing that. doesn't mean that he takes pleasure, as we see in Ezekiel. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He doesn't uh, enjoy the punishment. It's not something that, that he, he gets excited about or gets off to, but, but he does it because he's a just and a holy God. But also we see that God is merciful and gracious. And so that's obviously what we're discussing today yep. is where in that we fall. But that's a different diet. That's more in uh, the, other, the other points. But I wanted to mention that uh, since you already talked about the idea of some lost and saved in that uh, anthropomorphized analogy. Well, do you have a text that you would like Blake to respond to? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I would like to, uh, well, gosh, there's so we many. We have about five minutes left. Here. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, well, I guess, okay, I have two questions very quickly. Mm-hmm. My first question is, Concerning the original curses in the garden and what Paul says of Adam, mm-hmm. uh, would you agree that there seems not to be sufficient evidence for your position in those areas? I would say in the Genesis record, again, as God is specifically speaking to Adam and putting the separation between himself, maybe God would have said it there. He didn't. I can see that it's not stated in the Genesis account. But as I appeal, like I said, I could have gone through, taken the whole session, just reading through the scriptures, showing man's fallen state. And uh, if we do have time and get to Ephesians 2 in in overtime, so to speak, I think that that also uh, will give us that. But in terms of uh, Romans... I was going to say, I want to get to Romans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Let me go to the... It's Romans 5, correct? Yeah. Oh, I was thinking of Romans 3, too. (laughs) Oh, Romans. I love Romans 3. Yeah. That's a a (laughs) classic text to show the total inability of man. You brought up Romans 5, yeah, yeah, so I wanted yeah, to respond yeah, yeah, specifically yeah, to that, because I thought those were really good. Uh, and what was the verse specifically? Uh, well, uh, the section is 12 through 21. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, obviously, he's juxtaposing the fact that in Adam all die, and in Christ, those who are in Christ are alive. Paul is so kind of, he's very systematic in his approach, so he kind of like builds his points. I'm not trying to be dismissive here. I just genuinely think that that's not the issue that Paul's addressing there. The other section that you had... The argument of general revelation was that the one? Oh, general, yeah, 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 that too. Is that in the first? I'm, I'm thinking. I'm no, 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 my Romans too. So I think with that one, what general revelation exists so that men are accountable because they're without excuse because the things of God are evident. But we also see in Scripture that even the demons recognize who God is and who Jesus is mm-hmm. uh, and are aware of Him. It doesn't mean they believe in Him with saving faith uh, or even capable of believing in Him in saving faith. So I think that that one, I, I think you have a stronger argument on this basis of. Uh, it's not specifically addressed in Genesis or Romans 5, but I think uh, it is present, like I said, as we look into uh, some of these other passages throughout. So I'm not trying to disregard those passages, but I would say, similar to the Luke section, I don't know that that's exact. I don't know that that's what he's addressing 
gotcha. in that yeah. section. Okay. All right, we is all it. I'm saying. I'm okay. not saying it's irrelevant. I'm not saying that it's not a valid question, but I, I would question whether he's actually talking about that topic. We can uh, we can agree to disagree <laughs> about that. Fair but uh, I would ask our moderator if we could just have a little bit more time to look at two <laughs> passages. Uh-oh. Uh, the Ephesians 2. Overtime. And the Romans 3 passage. All right, let's do it. You want to just stay in Romans while we're here? Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Romans 3. Let's go to Romans 3. Where do you want to pick up? You're the one who's defending uh, Tulip this, this series. So why don't, why don't you tell me what your interpretation is of Romans 3? Mm-hmm. What Paul starts the section with, and again, I'm not a huge fan of chapter breaks. That's why I have whole Bibles that uh, don't have chapters or verses. I like to read the whole letter. Not very convenient for this, though. The, the reference Bible is extraordinarily <laughs> useful. Uh, but it, at the, so, so again, the, the whole letter is bigger than this. But at the start of the letter, he says, what's the advantage of the Jew over the Greek? Right? He's seeing, like, what, really, what is the, this, this chosen people of God who were set apart for all these centuries? What, uh, is there an advantage of them? And he goes in this whole argument. And then verse 9 comes up with the classic text where he says, what then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So again, that's a universal <laughs> statement. Uh, that includes everybody, because the Greeks were just the non-Jewish people in that, in that text. All are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I think that's a pretty strong assessment of human, and in this case, he is addressing specifically human character uh, in relation to God. He's saying, "What are the people of God, the chosen, the seed of Abraham? Are they better than everybody else?" No, everybody is under this indictment, and he doesn't say all die in Adam. He doesn't say all are destined for for uh, you know whatever. He says, "None are righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God." That's a pretty strong assertion. So I, I'm curious to hear your uh, rebuttal or, yeah. or interpretation. Sorry, because obviously we wouldn't rebut uh, an apostle. <laughs> yeah, I'll disagree with you that it's talking about all of humanity. I would, I would say the focus of chapter three is specifically he's talking to his Jewish audience. I would, I would say that if we want to look at Paul's indictment of humanity, it would be in Romans 1, 18 through 32. So in uh, verse one and two, he says, well, what advantage is there being a Jew? Or what benefit is there of circumcision? Well, he says there's, there's a great advantage. And why is that? Because God has entrusted them with the oracles of God and so on and such. But what he doesn't say is that there's, there's no salvific advantage to being a Jew. And in verse 19 and 20, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and that all the world may be accountable to God. Because by the works of the law... He's talking to his, to his Jewish audience because of works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In verse nine, he says, well, what then? Are we better than they? Are we better than the Gentiles? And he says, absolutely not, because uh, we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Everybody is all under sin. And then verses 10 through 18 is specifically directed towards the Jewish people. He's not talking about all of humanity. This section is speaking to the Jewish people to say that just as much as the Gentiles are under sin, so are you. And that's what this section is talking about. Except he does say all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, and then proceeds with this indictment, no one is righteous. Yes, but the context of the whole chapter mm-hmm. is towards his Jewish audience, not towards Gentiles. All right, but even granting if it, he's talking to Jews, when he says that they don't seek after God, that seems to be Blake's main point. Yeah, yeah, okay. So we need to remember that these are not Paul's original words. He did not write these. If we want to see what he thinks about what it means to be an Adam and what it means to be uh, apart from God, I would, I would say again, go back to Romans 5. What he's doing here is he's taking quotations from the Old Testament scriptures and he's applying them to his Jewish audience to say that you're uh, justly under the charge of sin. And so... Most of these are taken from the Psalms. There's one from Isaiah and maybe one from Ecclesiastes. And originally, in those original contexts, it was David speaking against his adversaries. It was David speaking against the adversaries of Israel. And so certainly in that context, certainly the case that no one, no one is righteous, no one understands, no one seeks God, that was only pertaining to a particular group of people against 
God's people. Certainly David was seeking after God and such, uh, and some people in Israel. So you're saying it wasn't speaking about a general human condition, but a specific group of humans were, who were outside of Israel. Yes. And then what Paul does is he takes these, and he forms them together, and he takes them from Israel's own scriptures, and he says, this applies to you, Jewish people. You are just uh, just as guilty as the Gentile of being under sin. I would argue that it's not talking about humanity as a whole. He's making the point that the Jewish people are equally guilty of sin. I will counter that briefly by saying at the beginning of the book of Acts, don't, don't the apostles, you know, as the Spirit is poured out, don't they by apostolic revelation through the Spirit not only reference the Old Testament scriptures, but give new light to them and enhance the understanding of those scriptures and bring them in by saying this is what was meant by Joel. Or Jesus does that, I fulfill the law. I didn't merely come to replace it, but I have fulfilled it. Um, yeah. So this idea of like a covenantal theology, like we're moving through these covenants and now under uh, the new covenant of grace, the understandings of the old covenant are brought forward and, in, and enhanced. Because as we see, the Jewish people had no understanding of Messiah. In a truce, they didn't understand God's plan of Messiah until it was revealed yeah. in Jesus through the Gospels and then the Apostles. So I think that it is important to see the original context in which uh, these quotations are drawn from, but I don't think that that negates the force with which Paul is using it. I would agree with you that what you just explained, how the New Testament sheds light on Old Testament scriptures, that's exactly what's happening right here. Because the, uh, the Jewish people, or at least some of them thought, hey, I'm, I'm a child of Abraham, I'm in the family of God, I keep Torah, I obey the works of the law, specifically circumcision, Sabbath, mm-hmm. and observing the food laws, and that's what makes me justify that what's that's what makes me right before God. But Paul is saying, actually, no, 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 it doesn't. You're just as guilty as the Gentile uh, of sin and the charge of it. And so he's taking Old Testament scriptures that didn't apply to Israel, mm-hmm. that didn't apply to them. And he's saying, well, actually, they are talking about you. Right. And so I would agree that that's, that's what he's doing. All right, let's, let's go to the next one. Okay. All right, Ephesians 2. You can take it away, Blake. All right. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no man may boast For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What's your take on this? My take is... Summarize how you understand this. So he's talking specifically about salvation here. And he's saying the state we were in, we were dead spiritually until God made us alive. Uh, There's no mention of us responding to prevenient grace or reaching up and God pulling us out, but rather but God rich in mercy, made us alive, and then after that comes this faith. Um, By grace you've been saved and raised up. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. I I used to argue that the the faith there is the object where it's talking about the gift of God, which I would still argue. However, I would say that it is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, is referring to this whole salvific process that he's talking about, that even the regeneration, the faith, the grace, it's all God's glorious gift to us, undeserved and given, so that now that we're alive and believing and responding to him, we can do these good works for his kingdom, so that the works, which I think we all agree that the works follow faith, but that's my understanding of the text. Jacob? Yeah, so I guess I guess it comes down to how do we understand dead in verse 1. We would both agree that it's some aspect of spiritually dead, so what does it mean to be spiritually dead? Does it mean to have total inability before God, or does it mean something else? And I would, I would argue that it doesn't necessarily mean total inability. If we look in, in the rest of chapter 2, he speaks about the people who were dead 
in their transgresses and sins who walked according to uh, the prince of the power of the air. He talks about how they were used to be children of wrath, uh, but by nature children of wrath. In Ephesians 2, 12, he says, Remember that you were at a time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus you, firm, you formerly were far off and have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So then, in verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of the household of God. And then in verse 18 and 19 of chapter 4 of Ephesians, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. So I would argue that what it means to be spiritually dead is to be separated from God, to be excluded from the life that he has, excluded from the promises that he has made for those who believe in his salvific plan. I would argue that it's not inability to God himself. All right, let's, before you come back on that, let's go to verse 8 here, Jacob. Tell me what you think about grace and faith there. Do you believe that that grace is God's and then the faith is ours, or do you believe that the grace is God's and the faith is also God's gift? In other words, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. What is this this referring to? Uh, that it's not your own doing. Is, is it referring to your faith? I mean, what Blake's point was is that this is referring to the whole salvation process, right? Mm-hmm. Do you have a position on that? By God's grace, we have been saved through our faith and not that of yourselves as a gift to God. So what is that not of yourselves talking about? I think verse 9 clarifies, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Mm-hmm. It's, not, uh, it's not something that we do. It's something that God graciously grants us. It's not something that we can boast in. Okay. Blake? I don't want to make faith into a work here because I think that that's a disingenuous reading uh, and interpretation of of opposing view. But I do ask, because in the flow of it, he says, by grace, through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And then he says, not a result of works that no man may boast. So I still would contend, I think, in the flow of this, of, of this chapter, in the flow of the section that he's talking about, he's, he's showing our inability, I would say, with dead and sin. We were, we were just like everybody else. We were, we were lost like the rest of humanity, but God made us alive in Christ. It's a God action. And then he explains that by saying, by grace you have been saved through faith. So there is a faith aspect to salvation. I hold that 100%, as I've said before. We, unless you believe in Jesus Christ, you can't be saved. So that's, um, yeah. but to say, I would say that not only the, the regeneration of being made alive to Christ, but also, and, and the general grace of God and his plan of salvation, but also the very faith that he gives us through regeneration to respond by making us alive. So now we're alive to the things of God. We have Zoe life. We can believe now that we actually can see because before we were dead, and incapable of seeing those things. So all of that is the, is the gift of God, is what I would suggest. So you're saying the grace, including the faith. And the regeneration yeah. mentioned earlier, and he made you alive. Yeah. Just that, that term of new birth, regeneration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I would, I would say that my faith in God is not totally in and of myself because God, God shows himself to us, and he allows himself to be shown as faithful. And so, uh, yeah, like he gives us opportunities to show that we can trust in him and have faith in him but how do we transition from dead in trespasses and sins and living in that world to belief in christ because i think the passage shows that there's a regenerative aspect yeah yeah yeah, in the flow and i think it happens before that he makes us alive to christ and then we can believe that's what i see in the flow of the passage Mm because he doesn't say that you saw this and then uh you responded to god you 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 were dead with a little island of right you know that little bit that could respond to god and then God showed his grace, and you, re- you responded, and then he gave you more. He increased your faith. You're right. It doesn't say that. Mm-hmm. But we have 12 other letters of, Paul's, of, of Paul to look at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's certainly a, a, a strong point mm-hmm. Just like in, the, in this very uh, focused section on salvation mm-hmm. yeah. that is not spoken of. Mm-hmm. Uh, but <clears throat> if you could show other places where it is spoken of, then that would be a comeback. But sadly, for today... We are completely out of time. (sighs) 
And I'm sure we could go a whole nother hour. Just on this, yeah. We want to leave something for the listeners to to wrestle with and contribute to. So if you're listening to this and, and you would like to come on and add your voice to the mix, please do that. Come on to reststudio.org and uh, drop your comments. And then uh, next time we'll be back on Unconditional Election. So that'll be exciting. Oh, yeah. And uh, thank you guys so much for... Uh, doing the the work to prepare and also being uh even-handed in your your participation here thank you thanks sean well that was a bit lengthy but this kind of material really does take time to present and to understand and to compare so hopefully that's not a deal breaker for you as far as more information about both blake and jacob you can get that on the show notes for this episode which you can get in your device or at restitutio.org. Just look for episode 138, and I've got links to both of them there. Also, regarding last time, I got a number of comments in. Ben writes, I've been listening to Restitutio for a while and look forward to the rest of this series. I also appreciate the preparation that Sean, Jacob, and Blake have done, or will do for this series, because it is certainly a major investment of time and energy. That said, there is one overriding historical error in this podcast that needs corrected. The term Arminianism should not be conflated with just any soteriology that emphasizes synergism, libertarian free will, conditional election, or other related topics. One branch or stream of the Reformation was the Reformed wing, and Arminianism is a specific tradition within that Reformed wing, as Jacobus Arminius sought to promote his, that is, the Remonstrants, soteriological views within the Church of Holland. Accordingly, it is not correct to say, for instance, that Philip Melanchthon caused Lutheranism to switch from, over from Calvinism to Arminianism. I understand the underlying truth here, that Melanchthon caused the theology of the Lutheran churches to shift from a more predestinarian or theological determinist bent to one that is more synergistic, but it is important to use our terminology precisely when attempting to arrive at theological truth on matters like these. Similar things can be said for the usage of semi-Pelagianism, which should not be conflated with synergism or Arminianism. Ben goes on from there, and then he concludes that, In the upcoming podcast, we should strive to identify the particular doctrine whose biblical basis we are discussing, rather than assuming a disproof of some unrelated element within the broader theological system constitutes disproof of every tenet within that system. All right, Ben, so we're not being super persnickety about the term Arminianism here in the last episode, or probably going forward either. I mean, it's really more of a question of Calvinism versus non-Calvinism and not overly specifying what specifically that is. And our strategy here is to really just stick to the acronym TULIP, Total Depravity, Unconditional Election, Limited Atonement, Irresistible Grace, and Perseverance of Saints, and really to say yes or no on each one of those. So whatever that ends up being is what we're doing. And we are going to be specific and really focus on the doctrine. The debate is not so much about the system. I mean, we're talking about the system, but we're not looking at the system as a whole, per se. Rather, really zeroing in on its component parts. But thank you so much for the correction there. And uh, Blake responded back, saying that he, he didn't mean to misrepresent the Lutheran view. And the focus is really going to be on the doctrines of grace in the classic Calvinistic system anyhow. Arthur writes, Hi, Sean. Thank you for organizing this cordial discussion slash debate. Looking forward to the series. It's a great ministry which helps with such a variety of interesting and important topics. Blessings to Blake and Jacob. Much appreciated. Thank you, Arthur, for writing in. Paul Peterson writes, I will be following this Calvinism versus Arminianism discussion with great interest. Deciphering the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's will isn't as easy as it might sound. It takes a lot of effort to switch back and forth between the positions, trying to sympathetically understand the scriptures from each point of view. Both the Calvinist and the non-Calvinist, not all non-Calvinists would call themselves Arminians, can make logical and theological sense. Both will point to many verses that seem to support their position. The non-Calvinist position has the advantage of being easier to grasp intuitively, But, when explained on its own terms, the Calvinist position is equally robust. I really appreciate the respectful tone used by both Jacob and Blake, and of course Sean, in the introductory session. This is a topic that has potential to divide friends, families, and churches. So as interested as I am in coming 
to the correct theological position. I am more interested in building one another up in love and reflecting the unity that is ours in Christ. Paul, that was very well said. It saddens me to know that so often we have to make that choice between either having a theological discussion, a robust, nitty-gritty, down to the deeper issues of a theology or a text, the grammar, the language, whatever. We have to either make the choice to do that or to encourage one another and to preserve unity. And I say that that is not a valid dichotomy. There's got to be a way, and I think you're seeing it here in this very episode, to get into in-depth Bible study on sides where there's genuine disagreement and yet preserve unity at the same time. So hopefully this can be an example of that. Well, that's enough for today. If you have a big point you'd like to make on this episode, please log on to restitudio.org and find episode 138. We'd love to hear your comments and also vote. Uh, Let us know who you think won. And we have a little poll there on each of these episodes going forward. It'd be interesting to see what you and the audience think. So check that out at restitudio.org. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to share this episode on social media if you think it would help others to listen to. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear. We'll see you next week.